Thessalonians. A couple of weeks ago, we did an introductory lesson uh, for this particular series. This particular series, uh, these particular letters that were written to the church at Thessalonica, there were two of them, and they were written with a purpose. And the primary purpose was preparation, preparation for the second coming of Christ Jesus. And there was some confusion there about that because some, some individuals had interpreted what uh, Paul was teaching them was to mean that before they pass from this life, then Christ Jesus would return. Well, something happened. People had died. Christ Jesus hadn't returned. And they were a little bit confused. There was a lot of things going on in Thessalonica at the time. They were being persecuted. Uh, They were being treated badly by some people. And they weren't sure of what was going on. And Paul got this information and he realized, I need to write a letter. Matter of fact, I need to write two letters. And that's what he ventured out to do. So tonight, as we look at... uh, at our study, starting in First Corinthians, uh, First Thessalonians, we're going to be talking about conversion. Uh, so, when you hear the term conversion, what comes to mind? Baptism. Okay. What about genuine conversion? Almost like the first one you said. Yeah, well, that comes with baptism, too. So let's put it this way. There is conversion where I just come, I come to, to uh, Tracy, and I got the book of James, and I convert Tracy using the book of James. When I say the book of James, the book of James. <laughs> okay, the book of James, right? And so I'm using the book of James, and I convert no conversion by James teaching okay so that's just conversion now when you get into genuine conversion now you're talking about what the apostles are teaching and so that's what Paul wanted to make sure that the church at Thessalonica was done they were dealing on genuine conversion not just simply some guy came along and said something you guys stopped doing what you were doing for a few days and everything is good he wanted to teach them a little bit more perfectly than that so as we venture into this lesson would you join me in prayer our blessed heavenly father We thank you for this lesson, Father. We thank you for these two books. We thank you for these books that are containing your word. Heavenly Father, we know that as we live, the life that we live, Father, that one day we're living with the hope and expectation that Christ Jesus will return. And Father, we know that we can have a confident hope because you give us your word, Father, and you tell us how we can live according to your word to be pleasing in your sight, that the hope that we have will indeed be a genuine hope, just as our conversion from from living in the world to living as a Christian is genuine. And Father, we pray that as we continue to walk our walk of faith, as we continue to mature, Father, we will continue to dig dig in your word. Dig in your word, Father, and apply it to our lives individually to help us continue our walk of faith and help us continue our growth. Father, we thank you for loving us and blessing us. These things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So a review of lesson one main point from a couple of weeks ago. We find that Thessalonica was an important port city in Macedonia. Now, with that said, if you've ever watched the movie Tombstone, 
you'll see where I'm coming from here. With that said, the people in Thessalonica, they were cosmopolitan. I mean, they dressed nice. They dressed the most uh, 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 current fashions and everything. There was a lot of people there that was rich. But when you put cosmopolitan lifestyle and rich together, there's one other thing that normally happens. And what is that? Sin or worldliness. So, yeah, they were cosmopolitan. They looked good. They smelled good. They were rich. And they were worldly. A second thing from that lesson. Paul established a church there in 51 AD, but he was only able to work there for about 30 days at the local synagogue, but he was able to start a church there, but then he was run out of town. He was run out of town by Jewish leaders who eventually made it impossible for him to stay there. So what he did was he made his way to Corinth, and, which is in southern Greece. And while he was there at Corinth, he received the message, Timothy arrived, and he gave him a message about the young church there at Thessalonica. He, Timothy told Paul of their progress, but he also told them about the problems that they were facing since his departure. So it was at this point that Paul decided, I need to write some letters here. By inspiration, of course. I need to write some letters here. So he wrote two letters to the church there at Thessalonica, and in these two letters he wanted to accomplish four things. Number one, he wanted to express his joy for their faithfulness. Number two, he wanted to defend his conduct while he was there because there were people who were making all of these weird accusations against him so he, was, he had to defend himself in his writing as well. Number three, he wanted to encourage them, which he did as well. And finally, number four, he wanted to give them more teaching concerning the second coming of Christ Jesus and how they can go about the business of preparing themselves for that day. Whether that day happened in their lifetime or it happened in our lifetime or it happened in a lifetime after ours. So the question is this right here. Why do we need to study First and Second Thessalonians? Yes. I'm sorry. It is an inspired book. So it reaches us today. It is an inspired book, and it reaches us today. If you look at the Church of Thessalonica in 51 A.D. And look at Anchorage Church of Christ in 2023, almost 2024. You still see us living in something similar. We, <laughs> Anchorage is cosmopolitan. We may not dress like they do in New York City, but we dress kind of nice. There are a lot of people here that load it. And there are a lot of people here in Anchorage that are worldly. We are surrounded by the same type of people that the Church of Thessalonica was surrounded by. Okay, so therefore, we too are waiting for Christ Jesus to return. But are we just sitting here waiting? Are we sitting here waiting by living a life that's conducive to what God will have us live to be recipients of that hope that he has given us? And that is Christ Jesus will return, claim his own, redeem his own, and we can spend an eternity in heaven. But it's not something that just happens because it happens because of what we're doing. So then, when we look at chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, what we see is Paul's salutation 
to the brethren there. And it starts out by saying, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the churches of Thessalonians, in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Then he said, grace to you and peace. Note that in this epistle, Paul puts his name first. Silvanus, which is the Roman name for Silas, it's mentioned second, and he didn't join Paul until he was on his second missionary journey when Barnabas and uh, Mark d- went to Cyprus. And, uh, and, and so he, he mentions Silas second, and he mentioned Timothy, who was the youngest. He mentioned him last. Now, he refers to them as the church. He refers to them as the church. Now, what he's talking about here, I know when we hear this sometimes, go, we know, I'm going to church. Well, that's just a building. That's not the church. I can be a church at home. Yes, that's true, too. But we need to understand what's being said when you say the church, when we say we're going to church. What we're saying is this right here. We're going to the place where the called out meet because church, as they intended it here, means the called out, the called out among the Thessalonians. We hear it at the bar, on the bar road, we are the called out among Anchorage. They were called to come out of the city of Thessalonica to be with God through Christ Jesus, just like we were. And this is what the term church means. Then you see the term grace and peace. Grace and peace are the normal ways that that Paul uses to address or greet the brethren. Grace is what you receive. So when I say grace, what comes to mind? Gift from God. Very good. Gift from God. And that's just what it is. Grace are all the spiritual blessings that we receive from God in Christ Jesus. Then he says, then he talks about peace. Peace is what these blessings, those spiritual blessings that we receive in Christ, peace are the spiritual blessings that make you feel as Christians, what do we feel because of grace? Yes. Okay, very good. You feel humbled. And you're right, you're right. You feel humble. That's one of the things we feel. What else do we feel? Rescued. Yeah. What? Is your hand up, Jerry? Yeah. We feel saved. All of those are good terms. Things that we feel as a result of this grace. You can throw in there forgiveness, adoption, righteousness, etc., etc., etc. All those wonderful feelings that we have. Peace is the result of grace. So basically, if there is no grace in our life, there is no peace in our lives. But note something else how Paul puts the name here, the names that he used here in this text on equal footing. God, supreme being. Father, same as supreme being. Uh, uh, Let me see, Lord, Greek word for Jehovah. Jesus, uh, the Lord's human name, Joshua. And then there's Christ, 
the Lord's title. Now, the word father. Is that a male reference? Because you guys have probably heard it. I mean, saw it on the Internet where I'm going to pray to God and I hope she answers. You know, they say stuff like that, right? Because they're looking at God the Father as a male figure. But actually, here, the word father means source. And it is not a reference to maleness, but a reference to origin. So Paul begins by putting God and Jesus on on equal terms, as equal rather. Then he transitions there with himself, his co-workers, his readers, including us as one single unit, if you will, within the circle of the Godhead. So next, the next section, verses 2 through 10, in that next section, Paul goes from a salutation of these people to the giving of thanks to God because of them. So when Paul and the others pray, he gives thanks because when they remember the Thessalonians and all the things that they are going through, they recall something. They recall the things that God has done in their lives. So we're going to read verses 2 and, ver- and 3 and 4, and it goes like this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, number one, your labor of love, number two, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a fourth thing in verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. That he has chosen you. So, Paul describes four things that we just counted out that they remember about these people that cause them to give things. Number one, he remembers their work of faith, which refers to the things they did because of their faith. It also confirms that they had the right kind of faith. And we talk about the right kind of faith as if there's a wrong kind of faith, right? So the right kind of faith. The right kind of faith. Somebody want to take a gander at it? What do you think the right kind of faith is? An active living faith? All right. Woo, go, Pat. (laughs) Okay, the right kind of faith. A faith that worked and served. Because, you see, faith that doesn't work is not true faith. Now, he also wanted to remember, he remembered them in their prayers for their labor of love, which signifies and emphasizes the intensity of their work. Because you see, when you think about going to all the world and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. When you think about what it takes to do that, 
It's hard work. <laughs> it was hard work then and it's hard work now. It was an effort. It was an effort then. It's an effort now. It caused fatigue as true work often does. It's, it makes you tired. If you remember back when we had We Care up here, when we had Eddie Clore up here, and we as a congregation was out there in this community, I saw y'all because I was here. We came back in the afternoon tired. We were out there beating on those doors, beating feet because we were walking all over the place. We came back tired. That was a busy, tiring two weeks. That was a busy, tiring two weeks, but we were out there doing it. It was a labor of love and that those who worked, they worked because of faith and that faith that they had persevered even when they were tired just like we were doing during those those campaigns we were tired that first day and then we were tired before they even got here as I remember because I remember goodness I've been um, uh, identified at Anchorage congregation when Eddie Clore came up here boy less than a month and I remember on the Saturday let me see I remember Vanita being there Tracy you weren't here yet Uh, Lindsay wasn't here yet Let's see. Uh, yeah, yeah, I remember you guys being there. Tony, you weren't here yet either. <laughs> Sister Marilyn and Jerry, I remember, you know, we were all sitting out there licking envelopes, stuffing envelopes and all this stuff. You know, we were doing a lot of work. We, would, we worked tirelessly before they even got here. And then when they got here, Eddie wasn't even here yet. We worked even more. And then Eddie came and put on a revival. And we worked even more. So during the daytime, we were out there beating on doors. And at night, we were here for the revival. And we were tired. But we were excited about it. So you see, the effort, the inconvenience. And it was effort and it was inconvenience for a lot of us. And the expense of serving the church is not given because it's pleasure. And I said this on more than one occasion. Serving as an elder, there are times it is not fun and there are times it is nowhere near pleasure. But it's joyful. It's joyful because of faith. It is given because of love. That's why we work, that we, why we have that labor of faith. You love because you believe. But he wanted to remember them in prayer for something else the steadfastness of their hope the steadfastness of their hope their hope now when we think about hope there's a big difference between wishing and the idea of biblical hope for example the lazy student will spend six months praying every night that he or she passed that test never open the book once never study once maybe show up in class that other student, that hard-working student, what he or she would do, she too would spend six months praying every day about it and every day opening up that book and study, every day doing the, going to class and playing it, paying attention. So when that exam come, you got one person like, oh, God, just let me help me pass the test, oh, please. And the other one is saying like, yeah, I'm going to do good on this test. <laughs> I'm going to knock it out of this park. Why? Because... They were studying and praying for success versus just praying that God would help them be successful without them putting any effort, any work into it. 
those, those, those of you who had children that go to college and they were on the dean's list and all that stuff, they didn't get there because of their cute smile and their last names. They got there because they put forth the effort and they did a lot of praying. <laughs> And they did a lot of praying. The Thessalonians had a biblical hope. They had a, a confident expectation. Not just, I'm going to cross my fingers and hope for the best. They were confident that God, God, the God who promised that he would give them eternal life, they were confident that God will deliver on his promise. Oh, you know it's weird when you start at 6.30? You know, you, you, you get going and you look at your watch and you go, it should be about 7.20 now. And you look at your watch, it's 6.50. Ooh. Then you realize, oh, yeah, I've been at this for 20 minutes already. So their, pers- their perseverance in love and service was sparked by their initial faith. It was kept alive by their unchanging hope and confidence in God and his promises. So this gives us a thought on something then. When you lose hope, when you lose hope, it is usually a sign that your faith and your love for Christ Jesus are weak. Paul says that all these things is done in the presence of God who accepts our love, but something else. He sees past our Love and work. He sees past that work to the faith that motivates it. Mankind looks at us and they see the work, they see the work, they see the work, they see the work. God looks at us and see the work too, but God also sees the faith that accompanies that work. And that makes a difference. And because of this, God guarantees, because of this, God strengthens our hope of eternal life. This creates a life-affirming cycle that produces peace in our lives. It produces joy in our hearts. And finally, what he prays for is their, we talked about this at the beginning, their not conversion, but their genuine conversion. Seeing their faith seeing their hope, seeing their love, Paul is reassured that, that they are truly chosen of God, that they are truly loved by God. And you know what? For those who sat down with us and taught us the gospel, over a period of time, they should have been able to look at us and see the same thing if we were truly serious. They should have been able to see the same thing in us. We know we are sons of God because of his work and faith, because of his sustaining love, because of his enduring hope. We know these things. And this is how we can know the truth of God's word from that which is fake. Paul is also assured of their position with God because of the the circumstances, if you will, surrounding the time when they became Christians. He knew and was assured, and rather was assuring them, I should say, 
that theirs was a genuine conversion. And he had four reasons for coming to this conclusion. Four reasons for coming to this conclusion. And that's what we're going to spend the rest of this lesson talking about. You see, oops, here to myself. The message, he was assured of their genuine conversion because the message they heard was from God. At the first part of verse 5, the Bible says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul and his workers, those who were working with him, they were motivated by the power. They were motivated by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit since it was, remember, it was a vision that brought them there in the first place. (laughs) Remember that figure said, come over here and help us. They knew that it was God's word that they spoke and, and not man's word like so many false teachers at that time was going around telling these lies and making these accusations about them and, 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 and even saying, you know, things that was untrue about God. He knew that the messengers were fully convicted concerning their message. He knew that it was truly from God and because of this they all had no doubt in what it was they were teaching and preaching this should be the same criteria in our own salvation when we look at ourselves when we look at ourselves do we ask this question has what I believed come from God uh, from a man-made religion Uh, even I was teaching Trace a few minutes ago and I had the book of James She's looking like, uh, James, you're not that one. <laughs> you're a little bit too young, bro. Another thing we should look at ourselves and say, and this is a question in a way. You know, we, we go back to Matthew chapter tw- uh, 28, right? And we're told, first Christ Jesus tells all authority has been given in him on earth, in heaven and on earth, okay? Then he tells us to make disciples of all the nations. We are to go into the world, and we are to make disciples. We are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So when we, we look at that right there. That, that takes courage to do that. It takes courage to go out there and tell somebody that, to teach somebody this. So what gives us the courage to reach out to people like that? Is it the size of the church? The building? Is it the size of the building? Yes or no? No. Is it the size of the building's bank account? No. Well, what gives us the courage to do it then? The Holy Spirit. Yes. And what is the Holy Spirit? What authority is the Holy Spirit speaking from? God. That's it. So that is what gives us the courage. It is the power of the message. The power of the message. So this is where we get into the logic of things. You know, I like those if-then statements I like to use for logic. If it is God's message, then, logically speaking, we have all the power we will ever need to go out and evangelize the world. Just that simple. Now, they knew that their conversion was genuine because the messengers were godly. The latter part of verse 5, you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. 
not only was the message from God, but the messengers also acted in a godly way. The power of the message is regulated by the quality of the messenger. Give you an example here. So let's say Miss Lindsay, I want to invite you to this who this really festive occasion. So, if you found my invitation in your spam, how would you feel about the invitation? Not great. However, if it was delivered to you, yeah, you feel a lot different. And, and that's, that's what we're talking about here. So, the apostles had a clear conscience. Okay. The apostles had a clear conscience and acted honorably among the new converts because their message was credible. If a person doesn't see anything special about you, or in you rather because of Christ, why should they believe? Number three, they knew their conversion was genuine because the message produced a change. For the sake of time, we're not going to read verse 6. But the Thessalonians began imitating the apostles as the apostles imitated the Lord. They were convinced that the message was from God himself, and they had no doubt at all in the message that they had received that brought them there, that it came from Jesus. So they improved their conduct. They obeyed the word despite the pressure from the Jews and the pagans around them. The truest proof of a sincere conversion to Christ Jesus is a change in lifestyle. The greater the change, the greater the assurance of a full and complete conversion. Finally, Paul knew and was thankful for their true conversion because they became the message, which we read in verses 7 through 10. As Christians, we not only have a duty to the lost, but we also have a duty to other believers, not only in this congregation, but other congregations as well. We need to be a light of encouragement to everyone. I, we or I, must become the voice of God to the lost but also we must become the voice of encouragement to the brethren to fully mature. So, in summarizing lesson two, Paul is writing to this young church, rejoicing and giving thanks for them. Thankful because he is sure that God's chosen children, that they are God's chosen children for two reasons. Number one, he is sure of their conversion. And number two, he rejoices because of their growth. You have a ch- oh, I challenge you. Read First and Second Thessalonians daily, if daily, if if you if you can, because it will help us in our preparation for that day that will happen that Christ Jesus returns. It may be in our lifetime. It may not be in our lifetime. But if you think about that great cloud of witnesses that we read about from way back, they had no idea when Christ Jesus would come the first time. 
but they lived their life with that expectation and he came they gave us an example that we need to live our lives with an expectation that he will return whether it's in our lifetime or not now in our devotional tonight I'm going to give you three steps I'll talk about them in a minute and when our devotions start but it's our cycle of life as Christians so thank you for joining me tonight now I know how to better control my time did that alarm did that bell go off early (laughs) okay okay so let's go back and do a little reading then so let's go ahead and read verses uh, 7 through 10 so that we can they became the message so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So, I have finished the lesson. I did skip some things, but I'm not going to go back and pick them up. So what I want to do is this right here. What are your thoughts on the importance of living a prepared lifestyle? Living, yes, go ahead, Tony. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people. Isn't that the truth? <laughs> Any other thoughts? We're not going to make it without preparation. Yes. Tracy said that really resonates with her. We're not going to make it without the preparation. That is for sure. We can try, and we'll be sitting up there like that, like that student. I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, versus that person. It's, you know, and to be prepared, you're not cocky. So people, some people think, oh, that's just being cocky. But I remember a preacher said one day, he, he was asked a question. He said, okay, so you asked if you're going to go to heaven when you die, and you go, well, I hope. He said, well, if you've been living according to God's word, you're not just saying, I hope, like, you're saying, I hope with the expectation because that's what we read. There is a, that is hope. Hope, what does the Bible say? Hope that is seen or realized is not hope. We hope for what we do not have but what we expect. <laughs> Which makes it different from a wish. Isn't that truth? Okay, anybody else? I might die before Christ comes. That's a fact. Though a lot of people in Thessalonica came to that realization. <laughs> yes, Tony. They received the word, they gave up idolatry, and they served the living God. Yeah. 
simple instructions from a letter that was written 2000, over 2,000 years ago that still has power today for us because Anchorage, Thessalonica, no different. We still have the cosmopolitan, we still have the rich, and we still have the worldly. And each day we step out those doors and go out there, we get bombarded by the same stuff. And we have to make a determination. What are we going to do? How are we going to act? And it's not always easy. It's hard work. It's hard work living as a Christian, and it's definitely hard work helping others come to Christ as well. That's a lot of hard work. It's not always fun. <laughs> There's not always a lot of pleasure in it, especially when a relative basically tells you in no uncertain terms. They don't even want to hear you talk about it. You don't stop loving them, but you don't stop loving God in Christ Jesus either. <laughs> It's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Anybody else? Okay. Well, we're going to go ahead and close it down. And next time I'll be more aware of the bell that it's early somehow. It's messed up somehow. But we'll get it straight. I'll just ignore the first, the second one, and listen to the third one. <laughs> okay. All right, so thank you all. Uh, in a moment, we will have our short Devo, and uh, we'll be ready to go out there and take on the world. <laughs>